is a good turnout. Thank you all for being here. I'm really excited. Oh, okay. I'm really excited to see you all and just humbled and honored that you all chose this workshop to come to. The lineup really and truly is a good one, and I keep joking that I almost thought about ditching out on my own to go to some of the others because we have such a great uh, gathering of, of teachers here this weekend. So uh, the fact that you would come to this one um, is just very humbling to me, and I'm thankful that you're here. My name is Elisa, my husband Todd, and I used to live and work at Hume Lake uh, from 2002 to 2007. That was when I first met Emily Marshner, who is running this conference. And um, there were a few years that she and I, after we had left Hume, I had already started writing. I started a blog. I've always liked writing, but I started a blog back after fostering for a couple of years. Uh, fostering was a um, very difficult, rewarding, but difficult experience. And um, writing became sort of a way that I processed through um, all the highs and lows of that season. And so uh, had always liked writing, started writing quite a bit more at that point. And then sometime after that, Emily and I were in a writing group together. And I say together, we didn't live near each other. We were all, all of us in the group lived separately from one another, but we had these weekly writing prompts uh, that we would submit by the end of the day into a Google Doc, and then we could all read each other's and offer feedback on it. And we did that for like three years, every week. It was a really great experience. Um, I would say anyone who likes writing, get yourself in a writing group. It's a great, it's a great way to grow in your skills and uh, to just feel encouraged too by getting feedback from other like-minded writers. Uh, but Emily and I got to know each other even better through that experience and we're both fans of each other's artistic skills. She has much more of the artistic uh, visual arts. Um, my bent has always been towards writing but she's been a big encourager of mine and I'm just honored to be here able to encourage her as she as she runs this first of what is hopefully many creative arts conferences. Thank you. Uh, this one, as you all know, is called Words as Tools. I don't know if you guys know who Stephen Wright is. He's a very dry comedian, and I saw this quote a few years ago, and it makes me laugh every time I think of it, because it's funny, but it's also kind of beautiful, too. Uh, and since we're talking about words, I thought it was fitting. Uh, in this workshop, we're going to assume that everyone here has a basic grasp and understanding of the basics of grammar because you are at a writing workshop. So we're not going to be talking about the basic basics. What we are going to be talking about is how to view words and language and grammar as tools and how to achieve a higher level of confidence using those tools. A 10-year-old who has some basic tools and planks of wood and builds a doghouse is going to be praised by their family for their ingenuity and hard work. But if that same child grows up and becomes a construction worker and is still building that same doghouse when they're in their late 20s, nobody is going to praise them anymore because they have not increased their tool set or their skills. If I take flour and sugar and butter and eggs and only ever make sugar cookies with those ingredients, I and the people I feed are going to get sick of sugar cookies. But if I begin to add to those ingredients and play with them and mess around with baking times and temperatures, I am going to be able to bake cakes and 
snickerdoodles and bread and pancakes and croissants and pie crusts for pies both sweet and savory. As I increase what I have at my disposal and my skills with those things, uh, I will be able to have a larger and more diverse repertoire of things I can bake for my own enjoyment and the enjoyment of others. Just as a skilled builder can make things of increasing beauty and usefulness as they acquire more tools and more experience with those tools, just as a baker with more ingredients and more practice and experimentation can bake things that satisfy the appetite and delight the senses, a writer can likewise communicate with greater beauty and precision in a way that satisfies and delights the reader as he or she acquires more and more linguistic tools and spends time practicing and getting comfortable with them. It's exciting to think of language like this because on the one hand, the things that we can say are nearly limitless, but on the other hand, we can view language kind of like a puzzle that has to be figured out because no matter what it is you want to say, there is a way to say it. I've never been a fan of saying, like especially in thank you cards, of saying I am more thankful than words can say or I love you more than words can say. Most estimates say that there are roughly one million words in the English language. So when somebody says, I am more thankful than words can say, what I hear is I am thankful, but not thankful enough to spend a few minutes trying to find the right words <laughs> to say so. Um, there's always a way to say something. I understand the sentiment that sometimes our feelings can transcend mere human language, uh, but we have a lot of words at our disposal. And uh, generally, if there's something you want to say, there is a way it can be said. Today, we're barely going to scratch the surface. Um, when you talk about using words as tools, I mean, there are books and books and books that have been written about this. There's so many conversations that can be had about how we use language um, and how we elevate our writing through the good use of language. This is just going to be a glance at some ways that we can do that, and hopefully we'll get the wheels turning. Um, I have a number of book recommendations. I'll have some slides at the end with info on those books, ones that have been helpful to me. Um, so hopefully this is just kind of the beginning of a process that keeps going for all of us. Um, but first, what does good grammar have to do with honoring God? Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good. Did that go away? Sorry. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. As a baseline, our words should be used to edify others, and that's hard to do when we're sloppy or careless with our words. What qualifies as corrupting talk? What kinds of words build others up and what kinds of words tear others down? I trust that none of us as believers are recklessly throwing around foul language, but then again, none of us should be throwing around language recklessly, whether it's foul or not. Um, and foul language aside, we all know that it's possible to say something cruel using nice language. The real issue here more than how nice or foul our actual words are, is do we have the wisdom to know what to say and how to say it in any circumstance we find ourselves in, such that we are building others up rather than tearing them down? That is a tall order, but Paul says, 
as fits the occasion, which means we need to have the wisdom to know when to be forceful and when to be gentle, when humor is appropriate and when seriousness is called for, when to speak authoritatively as to a child, respectfully as to an elder, or with familiarity as to a friend. Much of this has to do with good common sense and good instincts, but when it comes to written communication, being attuned to the situation depends a lot on grammar, especially because there's so much opportunity for missed cues in writing. We've probably all gotten a text or an email from a friend who just can't stop using exclamation points, even if everything they're telling you is awful, that they lost their job and their dog ran away. And, and you're like, everything you're telling me sounds really terrible, but you seem excited. Um, exclamation points, that's bad grammar in that situation. It's communicating the wrong thing. Um, if we want to speak in a way that fits the occasion in our writing, um, it matters how we communicate. Secondly, God spoke the world into existence, and then he inspired the words of scripture to be written down. As we are created in his image, we should recognize the power that words have, and we should steward that power wisely. As believers, we get to reflect God's truth and beauty in what we do. Once upon a time, it was Christians who drove the arts. Bach wrote his music for church services. Michelangelo painted to beautify the church. Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables, which is a story full of gospel grace, which is loved by people the world over, even those who don't know the Lord. Now, any book written by a Christian author runs the risk of being relegated to the religious works shelf of their local bookstore, and much of Christian art in all its forms gets criticized from within and from without for being inferior or seeking to copy what the world already is doing well. Sometimes this criticism is well-deserved, and sometimes it isn't. But we must remember that all art has its source in God. He is the ultimate artist who designed this most beautiful of places, the world that we live in, and then spoke it into existence, and then spoke us into existence too. I would say that all believers, regardless of vocation, have a duty to remember in whose image they were created as they go about their work. Writers in particular would do well to remember that it was through words God created the world, that John calls Jesus the word at the beginning of his gospel, and that we call the Bible the word of God. Words matter very much, so let's use them well. As a quick side note, I am addressing all of you as writers because you have come to a writing workshop, um, but I don't ever want to imply that somebody who struggles with writing is, is, is somehow not honoring God in their lives. We are all accountable to the command of Ephesians 4.29 to use our words well, um, but of course it is possible to be a person who loves the Lord and loves others and still struggles to write well. Um, I, I think everyone can improve, those who love to write and those who struggle with it, uh, but what I want to say here is that there is a biblical foundation for seeking to improve our writing skills. Um, I have a very close friend who has always said that writing is difficult for her, but she started a job recently that requires her to write a lot, mostly in the form of e emails, but she's been very intentional about how she writes those emails, and she just told me that she's had a couple of people come up to her recently and tell her what a good writer she is, and she was like, those words have never been said to me before. Um, and so that can be chalked up to uh, lots of practice, because she has been practicing, but also to God's grace. Um, he is at work in her as he is at work and all of us. And um, so we can all be improving all the time. With that said as our intro, we will start with some general principles 
about using words as tools well. What follows is going to be a lot of tips and advice for growing your toolkit as a writer. Most of what's here is stuff that has been said by lots of other people and lots of other contexts. Uh, a lot of it is arguably a matter of opinion, especially when it comes to style and how we write. Uh, I finally read The Elements of Style by Strunk and White kind of recently. I don't know how I'd made it this far in my life without. Have you guys read Elements of Style, Strunk and White? It's really necessary reading. It will be one of the slides that I have at the end with my book recommendations. I love that little book. I think it's extremely helpful, kind of funny, surprisingly. Um, I loved it, but I didn't agree with every single piece of advice that was in it. I agreed with most of it, but there were a couple places where I differed and that's okay. You might hear me say things and you might disagree with it and that's okay because a lot of writing does come down to style and that tends to be personal. Um, our style of writing is much like our style of dressing. We all conform to certain expectations, but some folks make surprising choices sometimes, and sometimes those surprising choices pay off. The first general principle for writing well is to read a lot and to write a lot. Stephen King said, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of. No shortcuts. Uh, writing a lot is pretty self-explanatory. If you want to get better at something, you do it a lot. Regarding reading, King goes on to say, we read to experience the mediocre and the outright rotten. Such experience helps us to recognize those things when they begin to creep into our own work and to steer clear of them. We also read in order to measure ourselves against the good and the great, to get a sense of all that can be done and we read in order to experience different styles. The real importance of reading is that it creates an ease and intimacy with the process of writing. One comes to the country of the writer, one comes to the country of the writer with one's papers and identification pretty much in order. Now he, in this context, is talking mostly about reading fiction. He's not talking about reading books about writing. He's just saying read a lot. Um, when you read a lot, your brain is subconsciously going to pick up on good grammar and what a good turn of phrase looks like. I will say our oldest son is a speed reader and he's really kind of remarkable to watch. His eyes just move down the page and I watch him reading and I'm like, there is no way that he is getting all of this. And then I will ask him about what he's read and he, he knows, he knows what he's read. He's getting the content. Um, however, he is a terrible writer. <laughs> and so he's reading so fast, he's getting the content. And so he's a really interesting person to talk to because he's got all of these ideas that he's absorbing so fast. Uh, but he's not reading slow enough to let the actual like, grammar sink in. On the other hand, you don't want to be such a slow reader that you're missing those bigger ideas because you're so focused on the individual words. Uh, but reading at a comfortable speed <coughs> where your brain has the opportunity to learn even, even when you don't realize that's what's happening. As a formula, good writing equals the right words plus correct grammar plus clear style. Words are pretty straightforward in and of themselves. It's why we have dictionaries and thesauruses. Words have things that they do mean and things that they do not mean. Grammar is also pretty straightforward in the sense that there are rules for it, but there are different ways to form similar sentences. Understanding grammar allows us to get creative with how we form our sentences. 
Style is unique to the individual, but I say clear style because once you've landed on your style, you should stick with it, at least for the duration of whatever it is you're writing. In Elements of Style, near the end, Strunk and White say, who can confidently say what ignites a certain combination of words, causing them to explode in the mind? Who knows why certain notes in music are capable of stirring the listener deeply, though the same notes, slightly rearranged, are impotent? These are high mysteries. The point is that we can't always predict exactly what will work and what won't when it comes to turning the perfect phrase, but we're more likely to get there more often if we have a firm grasp on vocabulary, grammar, and our own personal writing style. And as a final, final general principle, this quote from Mark Forsyth, a poet or writer, is the, writer in general, is not somebody who has great thoughts. A poet is somebody who expresses his thoughts, however commonplace they may be, exquisitely. We may or may not have great thoughts. That's not what we're here to explore in this workshop. What we're exploring is how to express whatever thoughts we do have exquisitely. So on to some rules about words and how we use them. And again, we're scratching the surface here. I'm giving a few rules. This is not an exhaustive list of rules, just a few that I have found particularly helpful in my own writing. Don't use too many words, use the right words. What people often do is add so to an ordinary adjective and maybe like a whole list of, of so kind of words. Um, and it fills in the space and kind of communicates the idea, but not as, as well or usefully as if we were using better words. For example, and I don't have a slide for this one, but you guys have paper. Does everyone have paper near them? We could spread some out, but if you don't have paper, raise your hand and um, we can get some to you. We've got a sack, yeah? Oh, is there? Yeah, there was some extra paper. Okay. If you need a pen too, we have a few extras up here. We'll be, we'll be jotting down a few things as we go, and then we'll have some longer writing prompts at the end. Um, so instead of saying so happy, what could we say instead? I'm happy. You could say I'm happy. Elated. Elated. Delighted. Right? Instead of saying so tired, we could say exhausted, pushed, weary. Instead of saying so thirsty, we're parched. Instead of so mad, a person is irate, furious, enraged. Yes. Yeah, don't be afraid to use a thesaurus. Um, don't use words that you find there that you would never otherwise use, because that will probably be obvious. <laughs> um, but don't be afraid of the thesaurus. I use the thesaurus a lot, sometimes just to jog my memory. Like when you know there's a word that you want to use and it's just not coming, it's a good way to, to find it. Um, let's take this very boring sentence. Janice was a very nice and friendly girl who loved meeting new people. The other students all liked her and thought she was great. She had lots of friends. So, okay, we get it. Janice is friendly. People like her. She has friends. But this is, this is a boring way to say it. Take a minute and jot it down two different ways. 
one using some kind of flowery language, or at least, you know, you can keep it about the same length, but substitute all the very, nice is a terrible word. Don't ever use nice. Um, <laughs> but the varies, the nices, they like to, like these are all very just tame, bland words. So rewrite it once with more interesting words and then rewrite it a second time, channeling your inner Ernest Hemingway and make it very short, but communicate the same idea. Take just a minute to do that. All right. Is there anyone who would like to share their long rewrite? We'll start with the long, the long rewrite, the ones that are similar length but with better words. Thanks, Jermaine. Yeah? All right. <clears throat> Mingling with a crowd of new faces brought sweet Janice to the moon. She would shine and sparkle among a crowd and was exquisitely admired wherever her beams of light fell. That was beautiful. Well done. Anyone else? Jeff? This was just fun. So uh, Janice was often found surrounded by other students. They liked her, but she had a hunger to move on, to meet new friends, to discover the person yet not discovered. Ooh. Oh, I like that. Finding the darker side of Janice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this was the one I wrote, an extrovert to her core, Janice radiated warmth and kindness, and she seemed to attract friends wherever she went. How about the short one? Anyone want to share there? Yes? I just said, delightful, merry Janice had no want of loyal friends. Ooh, that was very Jane Austen-y. I like it. <laughs> I like that. Anyone else? Okay. I said, Janice was an outgoing girl who had many friends. <laughs> Boring, but communicates the point. <laughs> All right, so don't use too many words, use the right words. Our next rule is don't overuse boring words, and this sort of ties in. I already said so and nice, we should avoid whenever possible. 
Um, very is another one. Really is another one. We have a lot of these words that we kind of use for emphasis rather than finding a better word to suit the occasion. Um, they're already not the best words. They get worse with overuse. Take a look at this sentence here. It was a very hot day and Steve ran so hard and so far that he was very thirsty by the time he finished, so he got himself a huge glass of very cold water when he got home. Um, I, I tried to sort of exa exaggerate the varies and so's in here, but this is a thing that you see a lot in writing, just varies and so's getting thrown in sort of carelessly. Notice how many times they happen here. Very, so, so, very, so, very. Uh, once again, take a moment to, to rewrite this sentence communicating the same idea, but not having any so's or varies in it. Although, full disclosure, I'm going to put mine on the next screen when we're done talking about it. And just this morning, as I was running through the slides, I saw that I put a so in mine. <laughs> it was too late to change it. All right. Is there anyone who would like to share what they wrote? If you're still wrapping yours up, I'll go ahead and share mine. The heat was sweltering, and Steve chided himself for waiting until so. There it is. So Sometimes it slips in. For waiting until so late in the afternoon to go on his training run. He practically fell through the door of his house when he finished, then gulped down glass after glass of cold water until he felt his temperature begin to return to normal. <laughs> Anyone want to share theirs? It's okay if not. Okay, so we don't want to use too many words. We want to use the right words. We don't want to overuse boring words. Yes, Can I interject to something? This is just uh, a professor in college gave me this little rule, and it has helped me so much when writing these, but, and I apologize because I'm about to cuss here, um, that's not normal, but uh, this was his rule, was any time you're going to use very or so, and if you can go back to the previous yeah. slide, that you replace it with the word damn, <laughs> and I'll read it. Because then you realize how much. Yeah, you realize that that's, a, that's actually a weak way to describe the next word, and you would never use that word. 
but he emphasized it so much that every time I start to write very or so, it's like, oh, I almost cussed there. So it's just, it, it actually has helped me over the years to just stay away from those words. And every now and then you think, no, that's exactly what I want to say, and I can say it without cussing. So, anyway, sorry to interrupt. But. No, I like that. <laughs> create a particularly negative association with someone very. Yeah, I can see it. Oh, this was mine. The scorching heat dried Steve's tongue and muscles to ash as he ran with fever. Uh, ice cold water felt like a new level of life when he got home and drenched himself with it. A new level of life. I like it. <laughs> I'm in a different route. Said, the day felt like a pizza oven, and Steve's vigorous extended running left him questioning his sanity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Should I end up here? Oh, yeah. Okay, I have um, in the hot summer sun, Steve's thirst parts in his throat like a desert. Pounding his feet only exacerbated his thirst, and he, and he craved the torrent of a winter stream down his Nice. I love it. And the use of analogy, the pizza oven, and parked like a parked like a desert. So you said I like it. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, in addition to not overusing boring words, our next rule is to not overuse fancy words either. As readers, we notice this. If we read that Elliot the bank teller is flabbergasted by something, we read it and move on. We might pause for a moment and think, huh, flabbergasted, I haven't heard that word in a while, but it doesn't really stop us too much in our tracks. However, if Charisse the florist comes into the bank in the next paragraph to catch a, cash a check and she is also flabbergasted, we're going to notice and not favorably. It's going to, it's going to kind of trip us up in the flow of our reading. It doesn't mean the word flabbergasted can't be used more than once in a book, for instance, but it should be used sparingly because it sticks out and draws attention to itself. And if a word draws attention to itself, that means it's drawing attention away from the story. Um, as for this, we have what I'm creatively calling Elisa's rule for the use of words. If it is a common word, such as so, very, or really, don't use it more than once a sentence. That's not to say you can or should use it every single sentence, but don't use it more often than that. If it's a common word that carries more force, like wept or sprinted or adored, don't use it more than once a paragraph. If it's a less common but still familiar word, like shrieked or groaned or exquisite, don't use it more than once a page. And if it's an uncommon word, like obliterate, insufferable, abscond, use it sparingly. Like no more than once a chapter. If you're writing blog posts, you wouldn't want to use a word like that more than once, unless you had a very good reason to. There are times that there is a reason to repeat a word. But if you use the word abscond and you're like, oh, I like that word, and then you just kind of keep using it, that's just lazy writing. Uh, if you're going to reuse words that draw attention to themselves, you need to have a reason for doing so. This is one of those rules you have permission to disagree with because you may be thinking already of exceptions to each of these rules. Um, but I think it's generally a good rule of thumb for spreading out the way we place our vocabulary and what we've written. 
A, uh, a final rule about words as far as what we're going to be discussing this morning is to use specific language. Once again, from Strunk and White, if those who have studied the art of writing are in accord on any one point, it is this. The surest way to arouse and hold the reader's attention is by being specific, definite, and concrete. Uh, let, let's do a few examples just to get the point of what we mean. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll show you what I did for the first one and then we'll do a couple more. If you say he missed a lot of work while feeling poorly, that is not specific, definite, or concrete. But if you say he missed five days of work while sick with the flu, that is. Uh, let's try this. You guys can take a shot at this one. She seems happy about her upcoming family vacation. How can we make that more specific, definite, or concrete? And we'll do these ones relatively quickly. Does anyone have a thought for this one? Yes. The way she was talking and the look on her face made it seem like she was definitely excited about her upcoming family trip to to Hume Lake. So we have a definite spot and we have a description of how she appears, which communicates to us, which actually we're going to talk a little bit more about that idea in a few minutes. Yeah, so good. Any others? Yes? On 15th time, her friends would hire her. Of her sharing about vacations. Yes. So on the other side of it, like telling us she has shared so much excitement about it and how people are experiencing her excitement. That also kind of fits in with what we're going to talk about in a few. Her eyes glazed over in wonder while daydreaming about Tuscan fields. Nice. The expression on her face and where she's going. I said she is excited to visit the seashore with her husband and children in two weeks. How about he was not happy about what was happening? Oh, I meant to change that slide to say he was not happy about the crazy stuff that was happening. <laughs> so you can inject crazy stuff into that. <laughs> He was not happy about the crazy stuff that was happening. All right, thoughts on how to make this one more definite, specific, and concrete? He was definitely put out by Hume Retreaters chopping down trees. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> and correct. <laughs> Especially for that tree ring workshop. Any others? I put the chaos in the classroom influenced his thoughts as he questioned about whether he should be teaching. Yes, oh good. <laughs> Okay, I just did a funny one, okay. Yes. Uh, the frown on his face revealed his feelings about Liam Musk taking over Twitter. <laughs> very, uh, very current. Very current. <laughs> um, okay, well, I went funny too. The increasing presence of belligerent space aliens distressed him. Uh, <laughs> um, the greater the specificity, the more interest and relatability um, that it creates in the reader. Now, in this instance, it's because the belligerent space aliens is a lot more interesting and captivating than crazy stuff. But even with something as simple as um, having the flu, I mean, that doesn't seem exciting on its surface. But if someone says he missed a lot of work while feeling poorly, we're like, okay, 
And if someone says he missed five days of work while sick with a flu, you say, I missed five days of work while sick with a flu. That specificity creates a greater connection with the reader, even, even in simple matters like this one. Um, specificity is important in grammar. It's also important in how we write our characters, which is going to help us transition a little bit into the next section. Um, there is a, as a disclaimer, a lot of the books and things that I'm referencing today aren't coming from Christian sources. And so it, you'll have to take a lot of these with a grain of salt. There's a podcast called An Oral History of the Office. It's about the show, The Office. And it talks a lot about about the creative process that went into the creating of the show, and it, it's really fascinating, but it, you know, it's a little salty, it's worldly. Um, but they had a line in one of the episodes that they said several times, the more specific, the more universal. Mm -hmm. And if you've watched The Office, you know there's a character named Dwight, and that's, Dwight is who prompted this quote right here, because when they created Dwight, he wasn't just a middle-aged white man with brown hair. He was a middle-aged white man with a receding hairline and gold-rimmed glasses who wore short-sleeved yellow shirts and tan jackets, who spoke a weird version of German with his family, who owned a beet farm, and who was equal parts nerdy and macho. That is very specific. And you might not think, oh yeah, I totally relate to that guy, or oh, I know so-and-so who's totally like that guy. But there are elements to his character that suddenly feel more relatable than just an average white guy in the office. Um, and so when we're writing, we want more specificity in our words, but in terms of bigger ideas with plot and character, the more specificity we have in our writing, the more interesting it is and also the more relatable it becomes. And that'll take us into some rules about style. The first one, is one of my very favorite ones. It's one I think about often when I am writing, and you've probably heard it before, but it's the rule to show, show, don't tell. What it means is don't tell us what's going on, use descriptive language to convey it. There's a quote about this that nobody's really sure who originated it. Um, it says, don't tell me the moon is shining, show me the glint of light on broken glass. Um, the author Jonathan Rogers said, you've never seen gravity, but you've seen things fall. You've never seen anger, but you've seen someone yelling and red in the face. And a couple of you did this with um, the prompts that we shared just a few minutes ago about the expression that was on somebody's face or the way people felt around that person, uh, where you don't have to say exactly what the person is feeling because we see it in the way that you've described the way that they look. Uh, that is a way of showing, not telling. Uh, this next paragraph is one that I wrote, and I want, I'm going to read it aloud, and I, I want you to pay attention to what works and what doesn't work in this paragraph. As they picked raspberries for the pie, young Ruby was filled with delight. Her small hands were clumsy, so the raspberries came off the vine slowly and with difficulty. Sometimes she accidentally squashed one in the process, and sometimes one looked so juicy she popped it into her mouth instead of into the basket. Sarah stayed close, holding the basket for her, letting Ruby be the one to fill it, even though Sarah's experienced fingers could have accomplished the job much more quickly. It demonstrated what a kind, patient, older sister Sarah was. What is the sentence that is unnecessary in this paragraph? That last one. We just spent the whole paragraph showing that Sarah is a kind, patient, older sister to Ruby. We don't need this final sentence. Um, 
when and I read a book a little while ago and it felt like every single page had things like this where I was like, oh, this is a really good writer. And then they ruined it by explaining it to us each time. And I was like, who's her editor? Um, when you include a sentence like this, in a context like this, it's either saying, it's either insulting to your readers, like I don't really think you're gonna get my gist, so let me lay it out for you, or it shows a lack of confidence in you as a writer, um, that you don't believe that you're communicating in a way that people can understand. Um, so I think there's a desire to do this, probably sort of ingrained into us from when we learn how to write when we're younger, because they always have to have like a, you know, grade school students always have like a theme sentence for each paragraph, and then like the details that explain a theme sentence, and I think that sort of carries over into our adult writing sometimes. Uh, but you, you don't need to do that. If you're doing a good job showing, you don't need to also tell. Um, meanwhile, there are some authors who do this very, very well. There's a book called Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner, and I think he does, has anyone read Crossing to Safety? <laughs> Todd has. It's really good. If you haven't read it, you should read it. He, he does a beautiful job of this all throughout the book. I'm going to give a couple of examples. He says, Then I come out on the shoulder of the hill, and there is the whole sky, immense and full of light that has drowned the stars. Its edges are piled with hills. Over Stannard Mountain, the air is hot gold, and as I watch, the sun surges up over the crest and stares me down. What time of day is it? Not just morning, it's, oh, it's dawn. He's watching the sunrise. And what is the context? Where is he? He's taking a walk. He's outside, right? As I come out on the shoulder of the hill, there's the whole sky immense and full of light that has drowned the sky, drowned the stars. What a beautiful way to say that the sun is coming up. You know, when it, the stars start to go away even before the sun has risen. So it's that pre-dawn and then he sees the sunrise. He didn't tell us it's dawn, he showed us. Um, in another section, I don't have slides for these next couple, but he said, Friday evening, uneasily on time, we rolled along Van High Street under big elms. The western sky was red and there was light enough to read the numbers painted on the curb. A car length passed, we stopped and looked the house over. Now granted, he started by saying Friday evening. We know it's evening, but evening spans a, a large period of time. He gets more specific when he says the western sky was red and there was light enough to read the numbers painted on the earth. That's a perfect example of showing, not telling. Light enough to read, so we know it's getting dark, but he can still read the signs on the curb. And once more <laughs> from him, I remember, my bones remember, how it felt to wake up, aching from the hard ground, one arm asleep, my pillow of shoes rolled up in pants and shirt, gone somewhere and my face on a ground cloth sweating cold dew. Khaki light overhead. I remember where I am. What woke me? Birds, the horse whiffling a hayseed out of his nostrils or stretching his picket rope toward better grass. Beside me, Sally is still asleep, only a mass of dark hair showing. Carefully, I reach the flap and pull it aside. Even before we get to that sentence, carefully, I reach the flap and pull it aside. We've figured out where he is. Where is he? He's in a tent. Khaki light overhead, the sound of birds outside, the hard ground beneath. Um, he doesn't need to tell us he's in a tent. Now, granted, in the book, there's bigger context, and you know he's gone camping. But in this whole paragraph, he never references a tent, but he uses his beautiful language to describe where he is. Our next rule for style, which is related to words too, is to edit ruthlessly. <laughs> um, in Stephen King's book on writing, another one I'll reference at the end, 
Um, he says the second draft is equal to the first draft minus 10%. If that's a 2,000 word blog post, that means you're getting rid of 200 words. If you've written a 200 page novella, that means you're getting rid of 20 pages. That is some heavy duty editing. Um, some advice that was given to him when he talks about this rule is to take out all the things that are not the story. In order to take out all the things that are not the story, you're going to have to kill your darlings. You've probably heard that phrase. We all know that feeling of writing something where the words come together just right and strike you as clever, but when you go back later to look at it, what felt like this you know, burst of inspiration actually kind of disrupts the flow of what you've written. And so remember, you have to take out all the things that are not the story. Killing your darlings means being willing to ditch something you've written if it doesn't serve the story, even if you really love it. And if you do really love it, then write it down somewhere else and use it elsewhere. Uh, a lot of people have a journal that they keep for this. Anne Lamott, the writer, uh, uses three by five cards. She's kind of famous for that. Um, I use the Notes app on my phone because it's what I usually have handy. Another piece of style advice. Good characters trump a good plot. Even if, what, even if you're writing nonfiction, make your readers care about the people you're writing about. Because once they care about the people, they'll care about the things that happen to them. And that's the plot. Practically nothing happens in Jane Austen's books. But she <laughs> wrote really good characters. And so her stories are beloved and memorable. Um, she had a good understanding of human nature, and that comes through in the way that she writes her characters. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more at my next workshop, how to write good characters. Um, but what makes the story memorable is the characters more than the plot. I have long held this view. Um, I think a lot of modern storytelling focuses on these sweeping, dramatic stories, but they end up not being super memorable because the characters aren't as deep or as true feeling um, or as interesting. I uh, <laughs> have gotten in a lot of conversations about this in book clubs that I've been in because I'm usually the odd man out with certain modern books that most people love. And I'm like, I don't know, it just didn't land for me. Um, it just didn't, stories, stories just don't stick quite as well if the characters aren't memorable. I have long thought so. When I was reading Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, recently, I felt vindicated because I found this quote from her in that book. She said, plot grows out of character. If you focus on who the people in your story are, if you sit and write about two people you know and are getting to know better day by day, something is bound to happen. Characters should not, conversely, serve as pawns for some plot you've dreamed up. I say, don't worry about plot, worry about the characters. And I say yes to Anne Lamott on that one. Um, obviously, you want to have an interesting story, but the story will be interesting if the characters are. Do any of you have some examples of that? Like, is, are you completely disagreeing or like, yes? I agree. I'm actually thinking of the film Back to the Future. If you break down the plot, it's very. Section 18 is in one spot the whole time. You never leave Hill Valley. Yeah. And it's also, it's obviously impossible, not just with the time travel, but Bob Gale, who wrote it, he just, his thing was character, character, character. Movies are somehow have translated into now, and people love them so much, and they think because everybody loves 
talk and Marty. Yeah. And they even love Biff. You know right. I mean? like, you even love the characters you hate. Yeah. Like they love them so much and they accept the millions of plot holes. They accept the absolutely <laughs> weird situations that they totally. get in, you know, uh, because they love those characters so much. I think because. You know, and that's one of those that could have been a more plot-heavy, but I think it's more character-heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. And you're right, with Jane Austen, there's so much letter reading in that. Which is kind of like, you know, that's like the whole, that's like all of the, all of the books are, everybody reads letters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Love the and they go to balls, them. and they have conversations in the drawing room. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They just read. Yeah. yeah, did I see another hand up? Every episode of The Office. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely mundane, but the characters matter to us. Yeah. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Um, what was that? Oh, yes. Lord of Flies, it has like no plot, but it's all the characters. Yeah. And you know, that's a good example because I read that one so long ago, but I, there's a few of the characters that still have stuck with me to this day. That's a good example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whole description of Seinfeld is that it was a show about nothing. Yeah. yeah. And everybody liked the character. Yeah. Do you have any converse examples where it was like an exciting story but not memorable because of the character? Yes. I would say when you compare the DC universe to the Marvel universe in terms of the films, uh -huh. that they did a great job in Marvel, but with the character development. And DC had great characters they could do something with and great themes, but it just fell flat comparatively. And I think it was because of all the jokes and the inside humor and the way they related and the way they connected different characters in the Marvel universe. We just couldn't do that in the DC because of the way these strong characters, who they had ready to go, the plot, or something failed. I don't yeah. know what failed, but yeah. there, that's to me. They had characters, but the plot's failed. Yeah. Maybe. No, I, yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. They kind of slaughtered the characters. They didn't really do anything. Which one? They kind of slaughtered the characters. Yes, they, oh, oh, that's what it was. Yes. I was a friend who really loved these comics, and they hated the movies. Like, they went on, like, rants about it, because they were like, it's not that the characters are, it's not that. They ruined the characters. Well, and unfortunately, movies often end up doing that. Even uh, going back to books with it, even some well-written books, like, and some of you may love this book. I loved it while I was reading it. Um, but All the Light We Cannot See, I thought was so beautifully written. But it somehow, it somehow just kind of like fell away from my memory after I left it. And I, I, think, I think the author is such a beautiful writer. And the way he described scenes was very good, but I just was never, some, somehow I was never fully invested. And this may entirely be a matter of, of personal preference and style here. But for me, that was one of those books where I did enjoy reading it. I have no gripe with how the book was written. Um, but, uh, but something about it just didn't quite stick. Something about those characters didn't quite resonate with me. I think I felt the same way about where the product's name oh, uh -huh. a little mm -hmm. bit, because like it's a murder mystery, really, yeah. which is fine and, and interesting, but um, even when they passed the film after I'd already read it, I was like, wow, these are the most boring looking people, and it's probably just, and it's so mean, but it's also probably because I felt the characters themselves were boring. Were boring when you read it. Uh, just, um, not like, poor, not like unfleshed out, but just, it felt like, it, again, it's really a murder mystery, is what the book is, but the characters weren't interesting enough and weren't, 
Yeah. And I think it's like rave reviews, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So you got me thinking as we talk about characters and how culture expresses the character of Jesus mm -hmm. and the character of what Christian means or what church means, you know, like we, and I think about how we water down and make Jesus just very sweet, loving, mm -hmm. accepting all big hug. And then you forget the the other side of God's character. Mm -hmm. And and so then because I, I keep asking myself, how do I use words and language to truly articulate those truths um, and capture that full character mm -hmm. and not just water down the character of God or Christ or what it means to be a person of faith. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of how I'm, I'm, I'm taking this character concept. Mm. Well, in specificity, concrete language, definite language to, to reveal details and depth more than generalities. Yeah, so going back to the advice at the beginning to read a lot because we subconsciously learn from what we read, um, if you have stories where the characters resonate so well or stories where they don't, you know, pay, pay attention to what's working and what's not working um, so that you can be paying attention to those same things in your own writing. Um, we're going to spend a little time on prompts, but first I want to I show some of the books that I have found to be particularly useful. I've referenced some, but not all of these. Um, the first one I've referenced a lot, Strunk and White, Elements of Style. It is very short, really. If you, oh, in fact, I have a copy here. I don't have all of them, but look, look at this tiny little thing. It's so tiny, you can get through it fast. And um, I was surprised when I read it because, I mean, it, it's a grammar primer, and yet it's kind of funny. I don't know if, like, high school students who are assigned this realize that it's funny, but it, it is. It's funny if you like words, because whatever rule he uses in one, he kind of, like, like subtly uses it in the next. So White is E.B. White, yes, who thank wrote you. Charles oh. Webb mm -hmm. and um, Stuart Little, and yep. so he's a really fun writer, and so that's, he brings a lot of that into it. He does, um, although I wondered if that was all him, and so I was reading a little bit about it recently, and he says that Strunk was, he thought that, so Strunk was a professor, I think at the University of Michigan, maybe, that it was originally written by Strunk, who was a professor, for use at the university. And then E.B. White was one of his students and was later, once he was a published author, it was approached by an editor um, to edit it for like wide distribution. And it's been a publication ever since. I mean, I think that was the 1920s. And it's gone through several revisions and updates. Um, but I thought it must have been him bringing the humor to it. And I'm sure that he did. But I don't know if it's in an intro or somewhere else that I read. He, he thought Strunk was pretty funny too. Although it may have been sort of an inside joke thing between them. Like maybe he saw the humor in him. Uh, I mean, it's not like a laugh a minute or anything, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's an entertaining read. Um, so the, book, the book changed style. It changed style. The book about style changed style. Yep. <laughs> um, the next one, playing, of course, off of this title, is called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth. He was the one we had the quote earlier that said a poet... Um, poet's job is to communicate those thoughts however commonplace exquisitely. Um, 
I know we're not to judge books by covers. This one looks very pretty. This is the copy I have, but I have tried to find the same copy again, and all I can find is a paperback one that is much more boring looking. But the content is great, whether you have the pretty cover or the boring one. Um, this book gives names for all kinds of rhetorical devices. Um, some of them are well known, like alliteration, using multiple <coughs> words that start with the same letter. Uh, that's a familiar one to most of us already. Um, some of them sound nonsensical, like epizuxis. It's not a word I've ever heard before. It's a real word, and it is a rhetorical device. Um, every chapter, and they're short chapters. I don't have that one with me. But every chapter is a different rhetorical device. Once again, it's written in a very clever, funny way. And even if you don't remember the words afterwards, like I certainly don't remember the word I had to go back and find it, epizuxis. You're not going to remember that word. But what you are going to get is an appreciation for the English language and how to use it well. Because some of it will be a matter of him explaining why certain things that we do intuitively work to the human ear. And sometimes it's introducing a whole new idea that I haven't even really thought about. So um, it's in the weeds as far as the terms themselves, but the ideas are really, really useful. It's a fun, good read. This may seem like an odd one to include because it's not exactly a book about words, but are any of you familiar with this one? The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows by John Kinnig or his blog? It started as a blog. Um, I was gifted this book, so I wasn't familiar with the blog prior, but what he does is he makes up words usually with some basis in Latin or somewhere else. Like he has a reason for making up the word the way that he does. Um, but what he's, what he's doing is making up words for common experiences. And the longer he kept the blog going, he started with just his own ideas, but then he had people writing into him and describing feelings that they experienced, and he would come up with words and definitions for those feelings. Feelings like um, the sense of loss as you finish a good book or the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, or the heartbreaking simplicity of ordinary things, or the tranquil pleasure of being near a gathering but not quite in it. All these things that a lot of people hear and they're like, yeah, I've felt that before, but I've never had a word for it. And so it's not necessarily that you will actually use the words that he's coming up with, but there is that sense of sort of understanding the human experience, which is so necessary to being a good writer. And it's, it's all these like short little snippets. And so it's an easy one to pick up, read a few, and then come back to whenever you feel like. Next is On Writing by Stephen King. Content warning, it's Stephen King. So he's going to get <laughs> colorful. I have not read, I've read a couple of his books. Horror is not my genre. But this particular book is one of my favorite books I've ever read. And maybe I just happened to read it at a good season in my life when I needed it. But it's, it's part memoir and part writing tutorial. And it's just so good, so helpful, so interesting, inspiring. Like I found myself writing a lot after reading this mm -hmm. book. Uh, it's, it's a good one for for all writers to read, I think. Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott is another favorite. She gets a little salty too, not too bad. And some of her thoughts on faith are a little kooky, but she is so funny and so smart. And this book is really jam-packed with good advice for writers and lots and lots of writing prompts. Like she's just 
she just has so many ideas. So if you're kind of stuck in a rut with writing and you read her book, you're going to have all kinds of ideas uh, to write. When you walk. In fact, as I read this one, I would read a chapter and then put it aside and write for a while. And then I would read another chapter and put it aside and write for a while. So it was another inspiring one. Uh, and finally, Walking on Water by Madeline Langle. This one is about faith and the arts, specifically about faith and writing. And it was first published in 1980, still extremely relevant. And uh, it's, it has less in terms of practical writing advice, but it's really helpful for developing a good mindset towards what it means to be a writer and a Christian. There's lots of books out there. These six that I just shared are ones that have been particularly beneficial for me. Um, let's see, it's 11.09 now, so I'm going to share the writing prompts, and then uh, after that we'll close. We won't, we won't sit in silence and do the writing prompts. We'll close, and then you're welcome to stay here after that, or to take the prompts out to the puddle, or wherever you'd like to go um, to work on them. Uh, but we'll spend a little while talking through them and, and what I mean by them first. So. You can jot these down or I can come back to the slides afterwards if, if you want to remember any that have been put out there. But um, if you're just needing to get the writing juices flowing, try one of these prompts from Anne Lamott. She suggests writing down every single thing you can remember from certain aspects of your childhood, like everything you remember from kindergarten or everything you remember from celebrating Christmas as a child or birthdays as a child or going to school lunches as a child. Pick one aspect of your childhood and just write down everything that you can remember. This has two benefits. One is just to get you writing. And the other is if you're working on a story somewhere else, uh, she, she gives the example of writing about school lunches and as she wrote, she remembered a boy who was at lunch, at her lunch periods. She could always, she could picture where he always sat and what he looked like and how he behaved. And she'd sort of forgotten about this boy. But as she was writing about school lunches, he came to mind. And she ended up using that boy as a character in another story that she was writing. And it, I've done this a bit. It's interesting because I'll think, I don't remember school lunches. And then I start writing and I start remembering. It really does kind of unlock your memory. It's all there, but it takes a little bit to get there. If you're wanting to work on how you write dialogue, you can try this prompt, which is also from Anne Lamott. Take two characters who don't like each other, make them totally fictional or base them on people you know, and put them in an elevator together and then have that elevator get stuck and write the dialogue. Is it testy? Is it polite? Is it explosive? It's a good way to work on dialogue. If you want to get more creative with your word choices, write a descriptive essay about a place that you love. Never use the words very, so, or really. And don't be afraid to use a thesaurus. <laughs> if you want, am I going too fast for those of you who are in? Give it a moment. If you want to work on limiting your word count, write a mini devotional for the verse we opened with, Ephesians 4.29. Don't let it be longer than 220 words. Then see if you can edit it down to 200 words. Remember, the second draft is the first draft minus 10%. 10% would be 22 words. That would take us down to 198. I'll be generous and give you 200. <laughs> I'm actually doing this right now. I'm writing some devotionals for a 
for an Advent book that our church is putting together, and 200 words is is the cap for each one. And man, that's that's a challenge to communicate truth and beauty and language that is lovely in only 200 words. So it's uh, I can attest to that one because I'm currently doing it. Um, if you're wanting to write interesting characters, come to my next workshop. Um, for a bigger challenge, and this also, I referenced an author, Jonathan Rogers, earlier, and I got this from him originally. Write an emotionally charged scene without ever using emotionally charged language. And this, this fits under the umbrella of showing, not telling. And as an example, I'm going to read a scene from the book, A Man Called Ove. How many of you have read this book? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I'm pretty sure that it, we're supposed to say like Uve, but I'm not going to because that'll sound like I'm trying too hard. <laughs> I'm just gonna say Ove. Um, there is a mild spoiler that happens in the scene, but it happens, it's only in the fourth chapter. It's very early in the book, so you can still enjoy the rest of the book, even with the spoiler given right here. Um, so far, at this point in the book, we have met the character of Ove. We know that he is a curmudgeon. We know that he is uh, opinionated and argumentative. We uh, have most recently seen him in a flower shop where the florist was trying to sell him more plants for a better deal, and he thought that that was scammy, and he got in a fight with the florist. And so this is what we know of his character so far. We also know that there is something odd going on between him and his wife. There have been references to his wife, but we haven't seen her yet, and so we're not sure, but something seems to be amiss between them. And that brings us to this scene right here. Now Ove is standing in front of his wife with two plants because it was a question of principle. There was no way I was going to pay $30, rails Ove, his eyes looking down into the gravel. Ove's wife often quarrels with Ove because he's always arguing about everything. But Ove isn't bloody arguing. He just thinks right is right. Is that such an unreasonable attitude to life? He raises his eyes and looks at her. I suppose you're annoyed I didn't come yesterday like I promised, he mumbles. She doesn't say anything. The whole street is turning into a madhouse, he says defensively. Complete chaos. You even have to go out and back up their trailers for them nowadays. And you can't even put up a hook in peace. He continues, as if she is disagreeing. He clears his throat. Obviously, I couldn't put the hook up when it was dark outside. If you do that, there's no telling when the lights go off. More likely, they'll stay on and consume electricity. Out of the question. She doesn't answer. He kicks the frozen ground, sort of looking for words, clears his throat briefly once again. Nothing works when you're not at home. She doesn't answer. Ove fingers the plants. I'm tired of it, just rattling around the house all day while you're away. She doesn't answer that either. He nods, holds up the plants so she can see them. They're pink, the ones you like. They said in the shop they're perennials, but that's not what they're bloody called. Apparently they die in this kind of cold. They also said that in the shop, but only so they could sell me a load of other junk. He looks as if he's waiting for her approval. The new neighbors put saffron in their rice and things like that. They're foreigners, he says in a low voice. A new silence. He stands there, slowly twisting the wedding ring on his finger, as if looking for something else to say. He still finds it painfully difficult being the one to take charge of a conversation. That was always something she took care of. He usually just answered. This is a new situation for them both. Finally, Ove squats, digs up the plant he brought last week, 
and carefully puts it in a plastic bag. He turns the frozen soil carefully before putting in the new plants. They've bumped up the electricity prices again, he informs her as he gets to his feet. He looks at her for a long time. Finally, he puts his hand carefully on the big boulder and caresses it tenderly from side to side as if touching her cheek. I miss you, he whispers. It's been six months since she died, but Ove still inspects the whole house twice a day to feel the radiators and check that she hasn't sneakily turned up the heating. If you're going to effectively write an emotionally charged scene without ever using emotionally charged language, you don't have to include a little twist in it like this. We don't know until that moment near the end that his wife has passed away. We think that they are separated, maybe that she's sick. We don't know that she has died until that moment. Um, but notice there was no overwrought language in those three pages. There was no emotionally charged language at all. And yet I had to read this out loud several times before coming up here because I get a catch in my throat every time and I didn't want to start crying. <laughs> um, this scene strikes me as emotional whenever I come back to it, but there's no emotional language in it. Um, Yes. When you say emotional language, are you saying like, he was angry? He was, yeah. He, he was, was weeping. He was, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where it fits into the show, don't tell piece of it. Um, that, there, that you're not just telling us that he's sad. You're not just telling us that he's grieving. You're showing us um, by the way he's standing, by the things he's saying, by the way he's behaving. Um, Again, this one has that little twist in it. It does not always have to have a twist in it in order to accomplish this well. Uh, but this is, this is not an easy thing to do, but it's uh, very effective when it works. Yes? There's one thing I use to do that. I'm a photographer when I, you can't tell someone to be happy or look happy or look excited, but you can tell them to do something. So when I think about my writing, I'm like, what would I tell this character to do like how would I describe it from a camera point? Oh, that's good. Um, yeah. Like what would you tell a person um, that you're photographing? Like I'll tell a couple, um, whisper in her ear what you're most excited about tonight on their wedding day. And they always start laughing as soon as they look in here. I will come back to this screen with the prompts on it so you can look at it again. Um, but I want to share some final thoughts before we go away to work on these. Uh, Frederick Buechner said, So let him use words, but in addition to using them to explain, expound, exhort, let him use them to evoke, to set us dreaming as well as thinking, to use words to stir in us memories and longings and intuitions that we starve for without knowing that we starve. I should have put that up on the slide, and I'm sorry that I didn't, but this is such a good summary of what we're talking about. We use words to explain, to expound, to exhort, but then on a deeper level, we're using words to evoke, to set us dreaming, to set us thinking, to set us longing. Words have that power, and the, the more we learn to use them well, the more they can serve that purpose. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Maybe you're writing marketing emails for your job or devotionals for the staff at your church or a novel about a middle-aged mom who joins a roller derby club. 
whatever you're writing, it should be done to the glory of God. Part of that means the content should glorify God, something we'll talk about more at the next session. But it also means that the way we communicate that content should glorify God, and that means using our words wisely. As you work on these prompts, as you contemplate the things you're learning at this conference, as you send texts to friends and family afterwards, as you go home and read these books, as you write more of whatever it is you feel you've been called to write, may you say, along with David, oh, sorry, missed that for you. Along with David, we say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you for coming. Please feel free to stay here to work on your prompts if you'd like. I will be here up until lunchtime, so I'd love to chat if you have questions or ideas or just want to talk more about the craft of writing. But if you would like to get out into nature to work on these prompts, please feel free to do that as well.